The police moved in on them unprovoked just a second ago. We don't want to loot. That's not what we out here for. But we do want justice and we want equality. And if we don't get that, we're going to be out here. We've been hit with rubber bullets. We've had tear gas fly in the air. The governor has issued a state of emergency. The National Guard has been authorized. We have state police. About an hour ago, Lester, a truck driver drove into the crowd, scattering thousands of people. Now, fortunately, we've just confirmed no one was injured. Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, to Eric Garner on Staten Island, to the protests in Baltimore after the death of Freddie. Police are trying to push these pockets of crowds out of certain areas. It is a very... They're asking for equality. They are peacefully asking for equal rights when it comes to black Americans and their treatment by I'm going to stop it, Chris. Now we got from the age of 15 to 20. I'm tired of this shit. You cannot continue to oppress, beat down, marginalize, redline, and kill a people and think we ain't going to stand up and eventually fight back. Spike Moss has been on the front lines of civil rights in Minneapolis for over 60 years. He has fought countless battles in the war for Black equality. While he has experienced many victories, there is one arena in which Spike remains winless. The fight against police brutality. This is Minneapolis Burning. There's no way we could talk about police brutality in Minneapolis and not mention George Floyd. His tragic murder in May of 2020 at the hands of former police officer Derek Chauvin was the straw that broke the camel's back. His death, coupled with a global pandemic, sent the world into a tailspin. Spike is all too familiar with police brutality, though. He spent most of his life fighting against it. He was one of the leaders in his community that helped organize lawyers, funds, and support as people were bringing their cases to court. Well, it was vicious here. And um, I won maybe 98, 99% of all my lawsuits. I lost 100% of almost all charges against white police officers, 100%. No state can be perfect. We lost these cases even with witnesses. All you had to do is make up any excuse and the secret grand jury that you never knew who, where, and why do they ever meet and what evidence do they get to always come back with no bill against a white officer. So you're telling me you've won the civil cases. Yes. But when it comes to police being charged. For the crime they committed against us. Nothing. The Native Americans and black people lost every single case from 1966 that I started. Even when there is an overwhelming amount of evidence of police brutality against people of color, it is rare that convictions follow. Historically, the legal action taken falls short every time. Spike speaks to a few cases, some more graphic than others, concerning the disturbing behavior from the police. Well, the, one of the ones that comes to mind, we had a brother, Sal Scott. He was a week or two from being married. He bought a new house, he bought a car, he's ready to have this wedding. And he's coming from work one night and the police were doing a sting, sting operation. So when he came across the bridge, he saw a car stopped in the middle of the road that he couldn't get around. And the door was open with a man hanging upside down. So he parked, turned on his flashes and everything and he got out to see could he help. And police jumped out, it's a sting. And they ordered him to put his hands up. They then said in the morning that he attacked them and they were forced to shoot him and kill him. 
So I called uh, Larry Katz and Gary Manka from Katz and Manka Law Office downtown. I need you to go down there and get them pictures in the corner because they're lying. The first thing they recognized was that somebody did cosmetic and put his head back on so you wouldn't know he had his head blown off and blown off from behind. The pictures revealed that he was ordered to hold his hands up. And I had the proof because he was holding both hands up that they said he came at them to take their guns and they were forced to shoot him. I proved it because the pictures had his skull matted in the back of both hands and there was a cocoon of his brains in his hand and going across the roof of the car. And they found themselves not guilty. And the, the officer in charge about two or three years ago, he retired and wrote a book. And he talked about how the female officer while he was holding his hands up, kept hitting him with a 12-gauge shotgun with double-eyed buck in it, and it accidentally went off and blew off the back of the skull all the way to the front. So his skull was in his hand, easy case, and his brain matter was on his hand and was all across the hood of the car, which showed he had his hands up. He don't know what you want, but he's following your instructions. We are now going to hear from Lorraine Gurley, the sister of Tysel Nelson, the 17-year-old whose case Spike had just spoken on. My name is Lorraine Gurley, and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. My brother's name was Tysel Nelson. He was 17 years old. And in 1990, he got killed by a Minneapolis police officer named Dan May. Um, he was at a party one night, him and one of my cousins. And there was an altercation down the street at a different party. And someone from that party came down to the party where my brother was at and said, hey, the police is, is uh, down there. They're having an altercation. So they dispersed, the, the people dispersed the party where my brother was at. In the process of my brother and my cousin leaving the party, he was in the alley. And the officer saw him and shot me back. So close up that out of a riot rifle or they have like a... Uh, the long bullets and inside the bullets they have so many pellets or whatever um, out of nine pellets six of them went through the tree and the other one, other three went through his back so there was no buckshot spread and it put a hole in his back the size of a plate Lorraine goes on to discuss how the police tried to defame her brother's character following his murder as well as the trial and then leads into talking more on how the culmination of violence is starting to affect people differently than in past decades. And it's leading to a more active call for change. He got killed December the 1st, 1990. In 1991 and in 92, they did the, well, they didn't really do a trial. What they did was they had um, the grand jury hearing um, and they decided that the police officer wasn't in the wrong. So he never did lose his job. So with Ty's case, we had the, drag, the grand jury hearing. They deemed that the police officer wasn't in the wrong, so the officer didn't do any time or anything. Hustle, don't start. And um, turned around. And so Keith Ellison, who is the attorney general here now, he was my brother's, my mom's lawyer for my brother's case. And that's pretty much where he got his start from. He was a lawyer, but he didn't have any type of, you know, fame or anything. But that case brought him some. My mom ended up settling for $250,000. After she did that, after they cut up all the money, you know how that goes, she got less than $100,000 for her son's death. Yeah. 
I always called it blood money because <laughs> it can't bring nobody back. But at the end of this thing, they got a lot, a lot to pay for. And you're seeing the repercussions of it right now. Yeah, I think just for the whole world, period. You know, um, United States has been the land of the free all these years. Well, freedom for who? You know, um, and now here we are, <laughs> 2021. We got to still fight for freedom? Come on now. Somewhere it got to end. And people are tired of the same thing. And now, see, this is the difference. There's so many white folks who got black folks in their family now. A lot of white people got a lot of, look, I call them uh, butterscotch kids. Because they have black, half white, or half white, half something else. So now the investment is a little bit different. Because they love their grandbabies. And they love their, their daughters and, and their sons. You know, no matter what they look like. So now that melting pot has spilled over into their blood. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. That's noticeable because it's always happened. They just didn't want nobody to know. But now it's out there in the forefront. So you have people protesting from all walks of life now because now they find, they feel some of our pain. They feel some of our ancestors' pain because now it's spilled into their backyard that they didn't want nobody to know about. But you can't hide it no more. As we discussed in episode one, the mistreatment, discrimination, and outright murder is not isolated to Black Americans, but include Native Americans as well. Here's Spike. how silly it was. You know, I did Native American cases for 41 years, and I had this one case where they took two Native Americans and placed them under arrest. They put them in the trunk in the summer and drove around all day with the trunk. Didn't take them to jail. They got caught. Why are you riding around within the trunk? Oh, they said they'd be more comfortable in the trunk. Then we had another silly case. The cops say. <laughs> they told us the they'd be oh. more comfortable wow. in the trunk. And then I had another one where an Indian was arrested for reckless and careless driving, for riding his wheelchair down alongside the curb. And they took his wheelchair to the impound and took him to jail. So they were entertaining themselves. I had a case where they took an Indian in a Minnesota winter, stripped him of his clothes, drove to St. Paul, and dumped him in the snow. So they liked entertaining themselves with the abuse. It wasn't just murder. They liked entertaining themselves. We had um, a black man mentally ill running around naked. They set dogs on him. We had another black man who was Somalian, mentally ill, took his clothes off, running around naked. The dogs tore off his private parts. And so when you understand that, um, it's not just murder, it's total abuse of someone they hate. Officers say she was acting aggressively, but some say those cops lost the line. policy. Police departments across the country have been under intense scrutiny by the Black community for decades. In recent years, the rest of the country has started to take notice too. At this point, it's hard to doubt or question that we have a systemic problem on our hands. That's not to say all cops are bad, but to quote Jay-Z, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. There have been enough quote-unquote bad apples and enough nationwide statistics to show that there is nowhere in this country where Black people are treated equally. 
For example, in places where stop and frisk laws have existed, they disproportionately targeted black and brown people. The behaviors of these bad apples acting within these systems aid in highlighting the bias and discriminatory acts that have gone unchallenged for far too long. Spike recalls a specific instance of such bias in the case of Al Flowers. Well, Al Flowers, we were, we were working on the U.S. Justice Department mandated police mediation for change. He was a member. He walked outside the Urban League to smoke a cigarette. A squad, put, a squad car pulled up and they just jumped on him. When we walked out the building and asked him what the hell is going on, the one who initiated it said, it's my fault, I don't know what's wrong with me, I don't know why I did it, we're gonna let him go. They got on the radio and the radio told him, take him down the precinct. We followed him down the precinct. Uh, they said he's gotta wait a minute. Then the county attorney who sold us out all these years, Mike Freeman, he said, bring him down, I'm gonna charge him. I then went in the Urban League to get the tape from Clarence Hightower to take down there so they could see he's standing there smoking and you beat him. He disregarded that and charged Al with attacking the police. We had to go to court. We get in the first day of court. We're losing. We bring the tape. They see the tape. We're still losing. All of a sudden, a white female lawyer says, what gave you the right to beat Al Flowers the way you beat him? He stood up in front of all of us and said white privilege. I'm sorry, he said what? White privilege. As his excuse. As his excuse, his right. Wow. White privilege. What gives you the right to beat Al Flowers the way you did in front of the Minneapolis Urban League? White privilege. And looked at us like, I'll do it to the rest of you too. The case of Al Flowers is a microcosm of a broader pattern of misconduct seen throughout the country. America is a country where they want to know if you want this job, any job, I need to know your full name. I need to have your social security. I need to have your address, your phone number. I need to know how much education. If you went to college, I need to know, did you finish? What college did you go to? All of that goes into play. And you sign all those boxes to get the job, any job. But there's no box that says to white Americans, are you a bigot? Are you prejudiced? Are you racist? Because that's going to be the problem for everybody else living in the country and everybody else working on the job, and you might be the boss. So take that over into law enforcement. There's no box. So how can you eliminate out of 800 cops, 700 and some of them being racist? Spike goes into further detail on this idea with a specific example he encountered. So I had a most interesting thing happen to me just to show you how Racism rolls. I had white officers come to The Way. The Way is an organization Spike founded, which we will discuss in much more detail in episode three. Mr. Moss, can we talk to you in private? I said, yes, what's up? You can trust me. Um, We got a problem down there. I said, what is that? Too many white officers come to work with their Nazi uniform. They're hanging in their locker. When they get off work, they put the uniform on and go to the Nazi meetings. Please promise us you won't tell. That'd be in the 70s. Please, please promise us you won't tell. I already gave you my word, and I'll look into it right now. So I drove down there, and the chief then, um, of course, he's saying, oh, that could never happen. That ain't this, that ain't that. I said, well, just go see. He comes back. He's real quiet, all red-faced. I'm sorry to tell you this. 
But I did find three uniforms still down there. Now here's where it gets sick. They promised me they will never bring the Nazi uniform back to work. I said, sir, they promised you not to bring the uniform back to work, but they can take the Nazi attitude into the streets of the black community? Because there's no box that deals with, are you a bigot? Are you a redneck? Are you racist? While these stories are just a few examples of experiencing violence by police, an important event took place during the summer of 1967 on Plymouth Avenue in Minneapolis. So the main avenue was Plymouth, and one of the cross streets on Plymouth that was a big avenue was Penn. And white folks would hit Penn, turn to the east, hit the gas pedal, and just spray black people with bullets. And this went on until we organized the Black Patrol. The police had pulled out of the community and allowed this. So for 91 days, we were fighting with white people with guns from the Black Patrol. Unfortunately for me and others, many of those who were in the Black Patrol are still alive in this community. We were in a race war with guns and the whole world didn't know because Minnesota owned Channel 4, 5, 9, and 11 and wouldn't let nothing out. The rest of Black America didn't even know we were under attack and we fought back for 91 days. The tensions that arose back in 1967 were due to the same unjust power structures that are still in place today. And in 1967, Black Americans were met with the exact same response to the riots protesting those conditions, the deployment of the National Guard, as well as violence between citizens and the police. Where the George Floyd murder has been painted as a catalyst for change regarding systemic racism within our police system, the Plymouth Avenue riots were a catalyst for change regarding the deep economic hardships Black Minneapolis residents were facing due to a system that repeatedly left them marginalized. Another initiative that was employed during this time of civil unrest was the organization of individuals working to limit the interaction between community members and the police. They referred to themselves as the Soul Patrol and patrolled North Minneapolis in an effort to act as a buffer between law enforcement and the community. Here we hear more about the function of the Soul Patrol from former executive director of the Phyllis Wheatley Community Center, T. Williams. The Soul Patrol was born. It was rather controversial because there were some characters in it that uh, uh, one might not uh, always trust, but it, it, it was an important organization because that in, in 1968, following the King assassination, when they were concerned about maybe having to call out the National Guard, uh, there was a, a convenient of people there from the Urban Coalition and some of the, uh, there were representatives there from the North Side and South Side and so on. And so what was offered up was that uh, let's not call out the National Guard, let's not uh, have more police uh, roaming around on, on, on the streets, that we think that we can uh, keep the peace, but we will need some support, we will need some resources. And what we did, the Urban Coalition gave, uh, uh, provided a grant of $8,000 to buy, and that was used to buy equipment. Now, this was before, we, we didn't have cell phones then. 
what we had were walkie-talkies. So we equipped walkie-talkies in one of the uh, stations or uh, operating points was the way and another, we had a, a site at, at Phyllis Wheatley. And then over on the south side, we had uh, the uh, Sabathony and then we had the American Indian Center. And so we recruited uh, uh, youth, a lot of young adults, and there were uh, uh, supervised, supervision was provided by, by, by uh, uh, older people in this group. And they were equipped with uh, walkie-talkies and then that they would, sufficient numbers of them were put in the streets. And so they were also, we had a, a rumor center. If you heard it, because that was always talk about someone coming in, you know, and that people are marching in from all over the place. And, and oftentimes it's just rumor. And so the thing to do is to let's cut off these rumors. And if we have people out there, they can go check them out and they would call in to, uh, they, they had about four different uh, stations you call into. Uh, to report on on the room and check it out, and we wouldn't notify the police if if it was surely a police matter. But what they did because they knew people that they encountered in the streets, and that that soul patrol uh, went on duty right uh, after immediately after the assassination of Dr. King and patrolled the streets for that the week following that, and we did not have a single incident of violence. In, in Minneapolis during during that time, you know, and and it was really because of of, of that. And and Spike was one of those uh, people uh, out in the streets. He was there for the group from the way, and some of his his friends that he uh, I don't know whether and you're talking to him whether he ever mentioned the Soul Patrol or not, <laughs> but uh, he was uh, one of the key uh, people involved in that Soul Patrol along with. Uh, uh, people from the uh, uh, Native American community, uh, uh, you know, Clyde Bellacore and, and, and some of the people there. And they kept the peace. While keeping the peace within the community was a large portion of the work done by prominent community members, such as Spike and T. Williams, their advocacy toward bettering the lives and circumstances of the Black community didn't stop there. With African Americans being incarcerated in state prisons across the country, at a rate five times more than that of whites. Creating better prison conditions and providing better services was a large focus of their career. So you can imagine what they felt and how they talked and how they treated. And if you said anything back, you were in lockup. You see what I'm saying? You got more time to do. And so a lot of times we would rebel and fight them and get more time because they wouldn't let us do our time. They had to constantly let us know we were black. And it went on. The worst one I had with Native Americans was in St. Cloud. And one of them got free and made a phone call to the city. They were in the, the, the powwow meeting that they had. We had a culture, they had powwow. And uh, a door opened up and a canister rolled in. And all they remember was this gas and they were choking and falling down. And those that were conscious, they told them to get on their knees and crawl towards the door. They were running a military experiment on them because they are state government property while you're incarcerated. When I went to the cells, I saw skin coming down the bones of their fingers and skin where their bones would come out of their skin and elbows. And I called what's today called North Point, back then Pilot City. I need some ambulances up here and take them to Hennepin County. And we took them down there. This whole thing went away like it never happened. What year was this? 
that'd be the early 70s. And when I went in the room, there were these giant fans on silver poles with giant blades. And there was a cloud sitting in the middle of the room. Two weeks later, still sitting there when I finally got to the room. The windows was open and they couldn't move it out from this experiment they did to Native Americans in Minnesota. You're talking about chemical warfare on inmates. That is probably the most dehumanizing thing that you can do to a person who is already incarcerated. But your property, man. The only time that anyone can be put in slavery in the United States of America is when you're in a penal institution in the United States of America. It's legal, you're their property. So they wanted to practice on them and they did. As you heard, incarcerated people were and are not treated with self-worth and basic human value. And this is doubly true for black and brown inmates. The prison system in this country is a reformed extension of slavery and rooted in personal and systemic racism. In her book, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander puts it this way. Like Jim Crow and slavery, mass incarceration operates as a tightly networked system of laws, policies, customs, and institutions that operate collectively to ensure the subordinate status of a group defined largely by race. Within these systems, it becomes very easy to mistreat the incarcerated because they're almost invisible to the rest of society. Well, I went in three prisons a week in this state for about 39 years, and I started all these culture groups to encourage our people to do your best to use whatever services would benefit you on the outside and do your best to learn and come home and don't come back. Because I didn't believe that if we turned our back, they would make it. I believe we have to help them make it. I also did prisons across the country as well as federal. And um, I was dedicated to saving as many men and women as I could in those institutions. Our numbers was overwhelming. Police reform has been a hot-button issue in this country for as long as the police have existed. Since about 2012, we have been watching videos, largely cell phone and body cam footage, of police misconduct. Naturally, this has led to increased media attention. The hope has been that by bringing more of these incidents to the national consciousness, that the increased coverage will provide the necessary pressure to change the system. We hear again from Spike, as well as Lorraine, on the limitations of media in the past. A long time ago, it was 30 years ago, and we had no proof. We didn't have any way to, to vent or give an outlet to it like we do now with the podcast and different things. We didn't have all that back then. So it was their word against our word. And pretty much still in Minnesota, it's your word against their word. Spike now gives his opinion regarding how historically media conglomerations have allowed for the narrative of the liberal state of Minnesota to live on as he references back to the 91-day race war during the summer of 1968. You would think that something like a 91-day race war would make the history books. But I, I grew up in Brooklyn, I'm 33 years old, and I have never heard of this until I met you. Why do you think Minnesota, could, Minnesota media conspired to keep this story from getting out? Well, just like when they did the last study, Minnesota's in the top three of the top five worst states towards blacks in the entire country. It's Mississippi up north. Everything is south after Canada. Our newspaper was the Hannesburg Time. So we knew where we were at and they suppressed it so they could lie about this great liberal state where there's no problems and always live a history 
of denial that they even owned slaves when they did. And so the racism here was more devastating. Uh, we're one of the few cities that had not only the Klan, but we had skinheads, Aryan race, Nazis, all in one state. We had the All-American Boys founded here in southern Minnesota down there by Red Wing and Rochester. We now hear about what the future may look like from Sadie Halfridge, a woman who grew up in the neighboring town of Maple Grove, Minnesota. When I'm on social media, Instagram or Facebook, I see so many more people posting about the injustices that are happening, about the, you know, killings that are taking place. I see so many people more willing now than even three or four years ago, able to say this is wrong and to denounce racism and racist actions and inequality as unacceptable and just like heinous as well. And I remember even just posting something a few years ago when Philando Castile was murdered um, and not seeing a lot of stuff on Instagram or Facebook and also getting pushback um, from other white people about, um, about my stance that, you know, it was completely unjust and it was a murder. Um, and so I'm encouraged by that. I hope that, that people standing up, um, and denouncing racism and injustices, that it's not performative. I pray that, um, you know, we, we take things a little bit deeper, right? It's not just something that we post on our Instagram for a day and say, Hey, we're good. I did my good deed, but that it's something that we go at on all levels, um, systemically to dismantle. And so, you know, that's talking to your legislators, that's protesting, that's, you know, making sure that we're not just saying like, okay, I'm going to post about it so that other people know where I stand, but that it's something that everyone is so grieved about that that is just the tip of the iceberg, right? And I think too, there's like a um, a quote going around, right? Like, um, I'm not going to be able to quote it verbatim, but it's essentially like, you know, racism won't end until, you know, white people see it as a problem that they need to fix, right? Like, until they see themselves as the problem and the power structures, right? And so I hope that that's, something that we grow to learn but there's so much great work like you said all eyes are on minnesota and so just seeing um how many people mobilized after um you know uh, these men were shot and killed at the hands of police um just seeing how many organizations and grassroots um organizations have started um to make sure that equality and fighting racism is at the forefront of you know, our agenda and our mission in Minnesota. Um, I think you've said it to me before too, like, you know, and so much research backs this, like Minnesota is a great place to live if you're white. The research tells that, but it's a terrible place to live if you're black. And so wanting to make sure that that is addressed, you know, um, and that the problems that make it a bad place to live for black people are uprooted. While social media is not by any means a remedy to the history of concealment by news organizations or the systemic racial problems that continue to plague society, Sadie speaks to how this type of engagement has aided in condemning racist actions and may provide support for further organizational activities that can foster change. These last two years, with the pandemic, people being kept in their houses, 
and spending so much of their time online, social media really did pick up, especially in the case of awareness of current events and even some sorts of activism. So you've been doing this 50, 60 years, and then we come to 2020. We're already in a pandemic. Everybody's going crazy. And then Derek Chauvin murders George Floyd. This is one of the biggest moments in Minneapolis history. It's not the first, by far, because if you go onto the block where George Floyd was murdered, I was there last summer, you just see a list of names. Tell me about your role in, not just the George Floyd, not, not just in the case, but in the community afterwards with the fallout, with the rebellions and the protests that took place. I began to do Zooms and speak wherever I was invited to come and speak because I didn't want black people and black children to stay in the street protesting forever. You've got to understand that these are laws that these people put in place because we were struggling against them so tough. They put some laws to make sure if we ever come back again, these laws would allow them to do this disrespect to us. Under the law, it would be legal. You got to go to the courthouse, you got to go to the Capitol, you got to remove those laws. From the previous episode to this one, we can see clearly how many stories go unnoticed, unheard, and even buried. The truth is, history is written by a chosen few who hold the power to shape the narrative. The country is divided right now over what a proper teaching of history is. And what really lies behind that is a nation continuing to deny its past and present. There's this organization out of St. Louis that I love, Unpaid Labor. Their tagline is there can be no healing without acknowledgement. Minneapolis is a city with a hidden history. It's known by some of those who are there, but hidden from the rest of the world. We've seen in this episode how decades of hiding the truth has impacted this city. How the police have been allowed to mistreat its Black residents and their history of uprising against it. Next time on Minneapolis Burning, we'll talk about Spike's organization, The Way, where we will get to hear about how he worked with people directly in Minneapolis, including artists like Prince, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. Minneapolis Burning is written and produced by me, CJ Quarterbaum. Audio mixing by Rob Peterzak. Made possible with support by Entertainment to Affect Change E2AC on campus, and of course, Labor Forward. For more information on Spike Moss and to support Labor Forward, please visit us at laborforward.org. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Labor Forward.